Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Today, we look ahead to August the 1st at Wembley as Arsenal and Chelsea meet in the traditional season opener, the FA Cup Final. With two former players as gaffers and at least two frequent gaffers as players, could this be a final for the ages for this season as it's otherwise known? Plus, playoff news. The Championship sees your flying ants and raises you a team of ambitious and well-organised bees. But who will they be facing in the final? And it's end-of-season review time. The best goals, the best moments and the most controversial takes on this Premier League season. It's all in the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Well, listener, here we are on a hot and sultry July the 30th. 44 days until the new season starts. And here to discuss, well, everything, really. We've got ESPN Brazil's Natalie Jedra. How nice to see you again, Natalie. Good to see you, James, in a sunny day. It's always a remarkable thing for a Brazilian who lives in London when, when there's a sunny day. So it's good well, to point so out. Well, that's so nice. Okay, yeah. good. Uh, enjoying the weather in the Midlands, meanwhile, Daniel Story. Hi, James. Hello to you, Daniel, and Nick Miller. Hello, James. Hello. Excellent. Right. As I mentioned, not long till the new campaign begins afresh, and plenty of moves are happening as teams align themselves for, you know, a fresh start. Uh, of course, we've got the playoffs happening at the moment. The The final lineup is crystallising around us. Nick, you'll be telling us all about that later on. Watford recently demoted. Uh, I read uh, are now in talks to bring in uh, former Catania manager Cristiano Lucarelli uh, to become their director of football. Lucarelli, who, if you were watching Italian football in the kind of late 90s, 2000s, was one of the most remarkable figures in Calcio. It would be extraordinary to see him pitch up at Vicarage Road. How much weight do you give those stories, Daniel? Well, he certainly left Catania um, and Watford are in the market for a new technical director to work with a new head coach. We don't know who that is yet either. It kind of feels like the sort of root and branch review that their relegation demands. But, I mean, it's a it's another gamble given they are a championship club, presumably in the market for players who Lucarelli might not be particularly au fait with. But, yeah, I'm, it needs something significant, I think, at Vicarage Road. In his time at his hometown club of Livorno, who were very much the underdogs in, in their spells in Syria. Lucarelli was famous for uh, celebrating his many, many goals with a raised fist and Che Guevara t-shirts and numerous kind of social uh, initiatives like starting up a newspaper to aid his beleaguered city uh, and, and also calling out the right-wing government frequently. Look to him to continue all of those kind of activities if he does pitch up at Watford. If you'd like to know more about uh, Lucarelli, uh, in actual fact, there's a, there's a wonderful Galazzo episode of our, of our Galazzo podcast all about him. Just Google Galazzo and Lucarelli. That should do it. Anyway, of course, the big thing coming up this weekend is the FA Cup final. Arsenal-Chelsea. We'll be talking about that next. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, make sure you check out their coverage of each and every Premier League club by taking out a free 30-day trial by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. Giroud pulling it back. Arsenal in front once more. Aaron Ramsey scores for the Gunners. Well, that was Arsenal and Chelsea when the two sides last met in the FA Cup final in 
2017. Only three years ago, but it feels like a different age already with your your Vengas and your Alexis Sanchez and, and your supporters, all that kind of thing. This time around, with uh, some talented goal scorers being brought to the party by the two teams and some potentially calamitous defenders as well, are we heading for a particularly vintage FA Cup final? Natalie, what do you think? <laughs> Maybe, James, because Chelsea and Arsenal this season are able to be very exciting and can maybe a bit of a disaster in some moments when we think about defensive skills. Chelsea in the Premier League was the worst defensive stats in the top 10. 54 goals conceded. Arsenal conceded 48. Uh, but both teams score a lot of goals as Chelsea scored more, 69 against 56 from Arsenal. Arsenal are too reliant on Aubameyang. So I think Chelsea in this sense has a little bit of uh, an advantage because they 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 can have more options up front. Uh, when you look at Arsenal playing, you're always expecting something to come from Aubameyang. Chelsea, you don't really know who will do something uh, different up front, if it's going to be William or Pulisic, who's been doing so well. So I'm very interested to see uh, how both teams will behave because um, a trophy, a, a, a FA Cup win uh, would mean so much for the start of, of both works, you know, for Mikel Arteta and for, for Frank Lampard. So I don't know how much they're going to risk, but I'm guessing they are going to take a, a few risks because that's just how they've been playing, you know. Got to go for it. Cup football, fantastic. Uh, a lot of people, I think, make Chelsea the favourites in this because they finished a lot higher than... Arsenal did in the table. They also beat Arsenal when the two teams meet in a cup final last summer in, in Baku in the Europa League. Both teams looking stronger in the semi-finals and teams that have finished above them in the table or teams that were doing better than them are exactly the, the teams that Arsenal have done well against of late. I'm thinking Man City and, and, and Liverpool recently. Yeah, you kind of wonder whether, obviously the, the semi-final, a lot of that was based on uh, David Luiz having one of his you know, reliable games. So you kind of wonder whether he's sort of spent his credits there. You know, he's got it. He's, he's, he's had his, he's had his reliable game. He's had his solid game and, you know, maybe he, he won't be a quite so reliable in this game, but you kind of, you can kind of smush a bunch of players together and come up with one reliable center back between the lot of them. So with the attacks as well, I know FA Cup finals are quite rarely sort of uh, multi-goal ding-dong tussles, but this, this one we shaping up to be one. Dan, multi-goal ding-dong tussle. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to see what the managers do with the formations because Arsenal have been playing this three at the back but but changed formation to play Watford on the final day and I wondered whether that might be a you know a prelude for their FA Cup final formation. If, if Chelsea are going to play Olivier Giroud at front on his own, which seems likely, it does seem a little bit of a waste to have three central defenders. The question is whether that allows Kieran Tierney to fly on. Hector Bellerin's going to be back as well, both of you like to push forward, whether they can do that without being caught on the counter. And that's even more important if, if Christian Pulisic plays because he's probably been Chelsea's best player over the last few months, Giroud aside. If Bellerin gets caught at the pitch and, and David Luiz and Rob Holding in a play as a central defensive two and Pulisic gets space in behind, then that could be the game right there. I did wonder whether, I mean, brilliant though Giroud has been, whether because Arsenal's centre-backs, or whoever they play really, aren't enormously mobile, whether Lampard might kind of go rogue and play some kind of three non-traditional centre-forwards up front, people who got a bit more pace and could, you know, really 
cause people like you know Louise or Holding or whoever um, some problems there, um, which would be uh, very unfair on Giroud, obviously. But it sort of might sort of sum up his Chelsea career. Really, he's objectively done quite well, but hasn't uh, up until recently hasn't really got got the kind of credit that he deserved. Maybe. Yeah, especially consider how professional he has been especially this season after everything that happened in the, in the transfer window in January and he's been brilliant so it would be very unfair to him but let's remember the last time uh, both teams met it was a 2-2 draw at Stamford Bridge and it was very exciting game uh, David Luiz got sent off and Martinelli scored a beautiful goal just showed a little bit how aggressive these two teams can be when they meet and that that's something I think we should look forward to. That right hand side of Arsenal's right hand side of the pitch does very much feel like the game. Um, if, it, if it's going to be Alonso and Pulisic on the left, then both clearly like to push forward. I wondered whether um, Arteta might play Bukayo Saka on as a kind of right sided forward, which he's only done twice this season. But one of those was Arsenal's win at Wolves, which was probably their best performance under Arteta. And having had that kind of fullback history as well. I mean, he's played pretty much everywhere this season, but I wondered if doubling up with Bellerin and Saka on that right might make sense for Arsenal. But everything we're talking about there is them kind of thwarting Chelsea, whereas actually I think Arteta will be saying, look, we need to play on the front foot here. We need to get Aubameyang on the ball. We need to try and get Ceballos higher up the pitch. And Because the one thing they're lacking is that obvious chance creator. And if Chelsea can keep Ceballos deep, then I think Lampard will be pretty happy. Although their successes of late and in, in those big games have have come when they are reacting to another team making making the game. Yeah, but they have also, we have to say, in a slightly small sample, they have got pretty lucky, you know, particularly the win against Liverpool. I mean, it came with a huge number of missed chances. And the one thing Olivier Giroud isn't doing at the moment is missing chances, and, and nor is Christian Pulisic, really. If Chelsea score first, I think it'd be very, very hard for Arsenal to get back into the game. So I guess Arteta's kind of slightly torn between going out the blocks really hard and trying to overpower Chelsea and worrying about getting caught on that counter. They did some very good defending, especially against City. And I'm just curious to see how far will Arteta take this line of thought of defending uh, really well against these big teams. Or Because I, I know in the medium to long term, it, it's not his idea for, for his Arsenal team. But uh, for, for how long will he put this on the pitch? How how, how many times will he uh, put Arsenal defending? This is a final. I, I'm, I'm not sure how cautious will he be or how he will find the balance between the, the Arsenal who beat Man City and the Arsenal that he wants in maybe medium to long term or next season, you know? So, so yeah. It is a huge game, this, for Arsenal. Beyond the, the, the fact of the FA Cup itself, it's also their last chance of getting into Europe. And if they were to miss out, it'll be the first time in a quarter of a century that they won't be involved in European competition, which is a, a crazy thought. It is a crazy thought, and it's a bit of a disaster in terms of, uh, financially speaking, uh, it would be very bad for Arsenal because they, they, they've showed that uh, Europe is a very important source of income and even so they they struggled a bit this season as their accounts showed 
uh, publicly. And uh, I know it would be a, a headache for the team for sure. And and for the fans, of course, how weird would it be for an Arsenal fan to not have European games at all? But on the other side, maybe you could look to Chelsea a few seasons ago when they didn't have European football and they won the Premier League. I know it's different circumstances because there, there was no big Liverpool or Man City that time, that period. But maybe it would be, I know fans don't want that, probably, I'm guessing, but, but it would be uh, a chance for them to, to look more to the Premier League and, and look for this improvement that they are searching with Arteta. Mm. Well, plenty of history behind these two teams in this competition. Arsenal have won the FA Cup more times than any other club. However, Chelsea have won it more times than any other club since Roman Abramovich took over five cups in 17 years and uh, Gunners fans looking for omens might want to keep their eye on Danny Ceballos because the wearer of the number eight shirt for Arsenal has scored in both previous meetings with Chelsea Lundberg in 2002 and Ramsey in 2017. The 2002 game of course is the one that famously saw uh, Tim Lovejoy paired with Bradley Walsh in one of entertainment's great uh, couplings and uh, so, some memorable moments there. It's only Ray Parler. Oh, no, he's put him through. Oh, it's all right, it's only Ray Parler. Very nice. What was that from, by the way? It was just one of those things that Sky used to do this fan zone thing where they would get two fans of the, the teams to commentate. One of them would score and the other one celebrating their face, and then the other one would score and the other one would celebrate in their face, and it was all very right. entertaining. But for this FA Cup final, they got in a couple of celebs. Who would they get in? Were they, and we can only dream of this, but were they to reenact a similar sideshow this weekend? Who should they get in to root for Arsenal and Chelsea? Uh, Suggs for Chelsea. Really? One for the kids. I don't know. Uh, I can't think of any... Um, Celebrity Arsenal Robbie, fans? Rob, yeah, Robbie from Arsenal Fan TV against Suggs. Is, uh... Make it happen, TV Supremos. Mm. Good. Okay. Well, who's going to win, just finally? Daniel, who's going to win? Um, I'm going to go for Arsenal as underdogs. Why? Uh, I just think it sort of matters a little bit more. I mean, I know Chelsea won't have one eye on the Champions League, but I just think they really need it a bit more. They need this kind of line in the sand for Arteta. So, Natalie? I'm going for Chelsea. I think they are more... Uh, uh, I wouldn't say consistent, but I think they're more reliable on this type of occasion. So, yeah. And Nick Miller? Yeah, I'm going to go with Chelsea as well. I think um, their attack is going to do horrible, horrible things to Arsenal's defence. Crikey. All right, well, you can follow what happens at Wembley from 5.30 on Saturday afternoon. That fixture, the start of a big four days of hopes and dreams being decided on the Wembley turf. Next up, we'll be talking about the Championship playoff final and who's going to be in it. Chelsea face Arsenal in the FA Cup final this weekend. But as it's happening behind closed doors, the TV sound engineers are trying to figure out how they'll create the inventive chance of Chelsea fans at Wembley. OK, so you just say Chelsea, Chelsea, Chelsea. I'll record that and play it over and over again. Yeah. Oh, the things they can do with technology. And as a cup final special, Paddy Power are offering money back as cash on all markets if Chelsea beat Arsenal in 90 minutes. Paddy Power. This match only £10 max cash refund. Pre-match singles. Online exclusive T's and C's apply. 18 plus. Begambleaware.org. 
You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Two playoff finals coming up at Wembley in the next seven days. On Sunday, Harrogate take on Notts County. And then next Tuesday, the Championship playoff final. Nick, how are things shaping up for that? Well, it's going to be Brentford against either uh, Cardiff or Fulham. We're recording this on Thursday morning before the second leg of Cardiff-Fulham. Fulham Fulham 2-0 up from the first leg. Brentford went through on Wednesday night, beating Swansea three uh, one on the night. They were they were absolutely superb. Um, worth sort of two up in no time, three up in the start of the second half. There was a bit of sort of jazz defending from Pontus Janssen and a, a really nice finish from Brian Brewster made it a little bit twitchy for them. But I think it kind of showed why they would. One of the reasons why I, I certainly want them to go up because they've just played such exciting football. The first goal was basically a, a rapid counter-attack from a Swansea free kick. It went from the Brentford goalkeeper to in the net in 8.8 seconds. The ball barely got off the floor, uh, Ollie Watkins scoring it. Um, I said that after the first leg that I thought they'd go through, and I, I think whoever they play in the final, they're, they will, they're going to beat them. Despite their sort of stumble at the um, at the sort of back end of the regular season, they're very capable of, of putting these kind of performances in throughout the season. And while Fulham were very impressive in the first leg, um, this is assuming that they go through to the final, I, I just think Brentford have, have got sort of too much for whoever they play in the final. Right, Fulham 2-0 up uh, from the first leg against Cardiff. Duncan Alexander will forgive us for pointing out that's by no means a done deal. Although, it's also true to say that no side has ever overturned a two-goal first leg deficit in Championship playoff uh, semi-final history. Crikey. Meantime, that Brentford performance against Swansea was a fitting send-off for Griffin Park after 116 years. Happy memories of Griffin Park. It's one of those. It's a you know, it's a proper football ground, isn't it? It's very. It, I mean, it, it's objectively very uncomfortable. It hasn't been updated for quite some time, and the the new ground just down the road looks very sort of shiny and new. But you know, doesn't have a pub on all four corners, and isn't quite as in the middle of rows of terraced houses. You know, you might not be able to see the the floodlights poking up for, throughout all the houses when you when you walk up to the ground. So less romantic, but more practical. Is being uncomfortable a key part of being a proper football stadium? Do you do you feel comfortable with the notion of football stadiums being comfortable? It feels like you have to earn the joy and the glory you get at them. I think that's probably fair to say. There's an inverse relationship between, I don't know, the hardship of the experience and the joy you get afterwards. Now, I like the idea of, of a kind of uncomfortable, not so spotty and shiny stadium uh, I, I've had the opportunity to go uh, to a lot of stadiums here in the UK in these years covering the Premier League and I, I find myself enjoying more the the, the difficulties and, and the, the, the uncomfortable side of these uh, kind of uh, old stadiums. I felt really bad because I, I never went to Griffin Park and I was watching the match thinking oh that's really sad. I'm not, I'm not going to go to Griffin Park because everybody says the best things about, about this. But uh, talking about Wembley, the different ground, I was thinking uh, that 
there are two occasions in the season where I, I, I'm especially going to miss uh, not having fans around. Of course, it's an uh, unusual situation, but the, the day of the final, uh, the, the, the playoff, the, the championship final, it's such a cool day to be at Wembley, to be in London. The, the atmosphere around the city is just, it's, it's incredible. Uh, the FA Cup final is, is also really cool, but the, the, the championship, I, I've, I've been, uh, I covered two times. Uh, the, the championship uh, playoff finals uh, Huddersfield which was amazing because everybody was just crying and hugging each other and Aston Villa really sad thinking about the, the championship playoff finals with an empty Wembley but that's just how it is you know the noise at those playoff finals is like I mean you, you go yes. you go to you, you go to games all the time and the, the, it's all, they're obviously often very loud but there's something different about the noise at player final yeah. I, I don't know whether it's the everyone being on the verge of being thoroughly excited and vomiting with nerves that creates <laughs> just something something a little bit different and particularly where you mentioned the Huddersfield game when there's you know, it goes to penalties and goes down to the, you know, the last penalty Drama. and um, yeah the, the, there's, there's something feels very different about playoff finals well if you want something comparable to the noise of people getting excited and vomiting with nerves check out the Totally Football League show which will be out Friday and we'll do a very comprehensive job of covering all the semi-final action and indeed throwing forward to Tuesday's game. Great. Next up for us, listener, we're going to be saluting the competition that's taken up so much of the last 11 months of our time on this planet, this season's Premier League. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Back in August 2019, some things were clear. Spending £40 million on Joe Ellington was good business, while Liverpool signing no one and going winless in pre-season were heading for trouble. And the facts have borne us out. Other things, though, across these 11 rollercoaster months of football, no one could have predicted. Oh, what a Mendy's lost out here! Pukki, surely! It's three for Moritz! This is the third game I've seen Sheffield United I think the style of football is quite basic. They're going to struggle. And they're here. Lining up the shot, and it's found a way through to hell. There's no getting away from that. Why would he swing in punches at that guy? It was the season Scrap it. of VAR in the EPL. Scrap it this weekend. It was the season of... Come on, come on, oh, and Rebecca Vardy's account. Above all, it was the season split in two. All professional football has been postponed until April the 4th because of the coronavirus. But, totally listener, what was it the season of for you? Well, loads of listeners have got in touch. Uh, let's have a quick look through a selection. Andrew Lang has Billy Gilmore bossing Liverpool and Everton in the same week. Uh, Tim Lawrence saluting Shrewsbury Town when they hosted the European and World Champions and fought back to draw 2-2. Con mentions Alisson's knee slide to Salah against Man United, followed by the fans singing, Now You're Gonna Believe Us, for the first time in over five years. And Damien says, When Adrian got injured by a fan celebrating a win on the pitch against Chelsea in the Super Cup, you couldn't make it up. Uh, lots of other suggestions, including... Ooh, a good one here from Surden, who mentions David Martin's uh, Premier League debut away to Chelsea. He comes in for a hapless Roberto West Ham win... And then he and every West Ham fan on the planet break down in tears as he celebrates with his father, the club legend 
Alvin says Surdon, uh, one of my best West Ham moments ever, let alone this season. Touching stuff. Oh, that was lovely. I, I almost broke down in tears when that happened. I really enjoy that. And, and I remember the, the Allison uh, pass for Salah. And I remember I was at this match and I was uh, at the flash interview area at Enfield and it's uh, below one of the stands. And it was the first time I was there that I felt uh, the, the, the ceiling kind of shaking because it was so the, the fans just went crazy. It was r very remarkable for me this 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 moment, you know. Uh, having uh, sort of reflected on some very important sentimental moments, I am going to go with the time when Matt Ritchie celebrated a late winner against Chelsea by kicking corner flag, which then ricocheted into a supporter's testicles. Right. Hey, speaking of supporter's testicles, remember the Newcastle fan who got his genitalia out and waved them around, helicoptered them, and I think subsequently re received some kind of lengthy, if not lifetime ban from the club as a result. All very unfortunate. I imagine it was 100% worth it, though. Right, all right. Uh, yeah, two two stick out for me. One is Spurs sacking Pochettino, which now feels like it was years ago. Um, but that kind of outpouring of gratitude from Spurs supporters at the sack manager was, um, was really, really nice. And also, the one that really sticks out is Johnny Evans urging Leicester players forward to score a 10th goal against Southampton when they're already winning 9-0. I really like that. I know the season kind of went downhill from that moment, but I enjoyed the TV cameras panning to him, demanding his players score 10 goals. All right. Touched by the number of listeners who got in, in touch to say how much they enjoyed features of our Totally Football show, uh, Daniel Hendry, uh, the Totally Quiz was my favourite thing on or off the pitch this year. Thank you, Daniel. And thank you, Nick Miller, because you actually did all the work for that. You wrote the questions. Yeah, I'm not sure whether uh, this is kind of near the start of lockdown, so I'm not sure whether it um, uh, helped or hindered my mental state at the time. But um, but yeah, I'm I'm glad to have given so much pleasure to the listeners. Great. Uh, Natalie, your appearance in said competition was brief but intense, while Daniel, you made it all the way to the final. Yeah, indeed. I don't know what which club that listener supports, but it, it, his best moment on or off the pitch is, um, yeah, it's quite a statement. Well, it was a terrific competition. Also getting a mention from the show, plenty of people talking about the time that uh, Raphael Honigstein taunted me about swapping Channel 4 for Bravo, one of my gold memories too. Uh, but let's now, uh, let's move on to our awards, making air quotes here, for the past 11 months. The Oscars have their small, shiny-headed figures. We don't have anything like that. But anyway, let's salute uh, the winners and losers. Um, first off, as is traditional, best player and best manager. These have been widely discussed by everybody already. Just for the record, who are yours, Daniel? Uh, I voted for Trent Alexander-Arnold mm. uh, as the player um, and manager of the year, Chris Wilder. Okay, Nat? What does Kevin De Bruyne has to do <laughs> to get the Best Player Award? Come on, Kevin. For me, Kevin. And Best Manager, yes. Uh, Chris Wilder is a, is a close call. We should definitely mention him. But I'm, I'm going for, for Jurgen Klopp because he was just... Liverpool was better in many moments just, just this season. Uh, many times they found ways to win when they weren't brilliant. And that's, that's due to, to Jurgen. Yeah. Nick? 
Uh, yeah, my player uh, booth, Kevin De Bruyne as well. Either, either him or Danny Ings, I think. Because uh, I, I kind mm. of think that you, for individual awards, you should sort of not give it to uh, a player whose team was dominant because the individual sort of stands out more against it in a team that hasn't sort of achieved their goals or whatever. So, you know, De Bruyne or Danny Ings for me. Best manager, I've kind of bottled it slightly by saying joint with Chris Wilder and, and Klopp. Um Partly because obviously they, they massively overperformed and were successful on the pitch, but because I'm a bit of a soft sentimentalist at heart, the way that those two managers have kind of made their fans feel about their clubs and feel about football in a way that they have, but I don't think that either, uh, either set has for a long, long time is I think is is almost more important than um, than sort of winning games on the pitch. Oh, that's lovely. Uh, on the subject of Ings, by the way, the red-haired dude says we should have an award like the NFL does. Uh, for a comeback player of the year, and Danny Ings would walk that 22 goals in his first full season since that awful knee injury. He could also be entered into the signing of the season as well, couldn't he? Because he was on loan at Southampton last year, and then they actually made it a permanent deal. No, spoiler alert, uh, Danny Ings is my biggest surprise of the season. So Same here. He, yeah, Same here. Yes, it was, it was the way that I found to squeeze him in in one of the awards because he totally deserves it. Who would have thought, you know, 22 goals, no injuries. He just did, he did a brilliant job. He, he deserves the credit. Okay, we'll come on to bigger surprise in a, in a minute. But uh, should we just have a quick roundup of your favourite goal of this campaign? W- what would you have for that, Natalie? Sonaldo. <laughs> Son's yeah. goal against Burnley. It's general terror in the Burnley back line when Son breaks forward. Oh, wow, what a run. Hyunmin Son from inside his own half has scored one of the best goals of his Spurs career. 80 yards in 12 seconds. And, well, I, I, I want to mention uh, Kevin De Bruyne against Newcastle as well. He just The way that he hits the ball. And uh, and even against uh, Norwich, his first goal against Norwich, he just makes it look so simple. It's ridiculous, you know. But I'm sticking to, to Son's goal against Burnley. Yeah, I think that Son's goal against Burnley was probably the best. Uh, Jordan Ayew scored a brilliant one against West Ham. I think that was on Boxing Day where he sort of shuffled around a few players. There was a little roulette thrown in there, dinked finish, admittedly over Roberto, but still. Um, I think my favourite goal of the season was uh, the goal that Trent Alexander-Arnold scored against Leicester. I I think that was on Boxing Day as well. Alexander-Arnold outside first. Oh, my word! You can't even put it into words how good that was. Liverpool's at 10 points clear, almost certainly going to win the title, but Leicester were second... If Leicester had won that game, there might have been more of a race on. But not only did Liverpool win that day, they absolutely battered Leicester 4-0. And this was a brilliant goal by a brilliant young player um, that sort of, if you weren't certain or already at that point that Liverpool were going to win the league, that sort of really underlined it by the, the way that they just kind of destroyed what was at the time the second best team in the league. Yeah, it's another individual goal for me. I've gone for Musa Gineppos for Southampton against Sheffield United, which uh, is very similar to the RU one and is a kind of microcosm version of, of Suns in that he, he basically holds off two or three players, one of which is desperately trying to pull him back. Gineppo. Oh, very good skills. Will there be a good goal here? Better than good goal. That was a great goal. There's something I always like in a solo goal, which is a defender sliding in completely the wrong direction because he doesn't know which way Tinepo's going to go. And then, yeah, slots it past Dean Henderson. 
All right. Other nominations from listeners included Jay Rodriguez's effort at Old Trafford in Burnley's victory there. That's from Mark Davidson. Jordan Lever mentioning Yehakenbash's spectacular overhead kick for Brighton against Chelsea, followed by his How on Earth Did I Just Do That celebration. Ooh, also should uh, give a shout-out to Matty Longstaff, making his debut for Newcastle at the age of 19 uh, in the Premier League against Man United and then scoring that absolute bullet. Yeah, I remember that goal for re-watching it with, with Peter Drury's inimitable commentary, shall we say, where he clearly had sort of five or six lines written down and the only one I think he didn't say was a goal for Newcastle, a goal for all of Newcastle. Peter Drury, a, a, a lovely man, by the way, and I don't think there's anyone who enjoys the act of watching comedy and football quite as much as he does. His enthusiasm knows no bounds. Bigger surprise then, you mentioned it already, Natalie. In some ways, perhaps the bigger surprise would be the fact that they actually managed to complete the season because uh, I had my doubts and uh, hearty congratulations to everyone who made that happen. But beyond that, who else would you like to salute here? Uh, well, I think um, in all the lists that I've seen, people always mention Sheffield United as a whole for everything that they've done. So it's it's the most obvious thing to, to say that Sheffield United was the biggest surprise. But if you speak to Sheffield United fans, and, and I did a, a couple of times during the season, they weren't surprised at all. <laughs> they, they were saying, no, oh, we were expecting this because we've been playing this way in the championship and we've been brilliant for for years now with Chris Wilder he's amazing but we have to mention Sheffield United as a whole but I I, I put Danny Ings because I think he deserves the mention uh, in some category we have to speak about what he what he has done nobody would have guessed that he would score 22 goals just behind Jamie Vardy this mm. season it's a great story on the subject of Sheffield United and surprises do you remember the fact that they actually signed Ravel Morrison way back at the start of the campaign. Um, he wasn't there for long. I mean, he never usually is. Uh, he had come from Ostersunds and then he went to Borough in, in January where he's had a handful of appearances there as and well. Has, and has now been released from Middlesbrough true to form. All right. Mm. Yes, one, of the, one of the first things that Neil Warnock did, I think, was when he came in was basically told Morrison to, that he could... Um, his services were no longer required. All right, Nick. What about your surprise of the season? Um, I've gone for Newcastle being vaguely competent. Um, I thought they would definitely go down. And I know it's incredibly tedious and that everyone does it to just compare Steve Bruce with Rafa Benitez. But I thought Benitez going, being replaced by uh, Steve Bruce, who'd been in, obviously been in the championship for a couple of years previously, I thought they would almost certainly be relegated, particularly after they got battered by Leicester. Uh, in the autumn sometime. I think they lost 5-0 and I thought they would definitely go down. But the, yeah, very competent to the point where I think they've got exactly the same points as they did last season. So that was my biggest surprise of the season. Mm. Daniel? Yeah, I went for Danny Ings as well. 21 top flight career goals before this season and he more than doubled it in one ridiculous season. So easy choice for me. Brilliant. What about the flip side of that coin, your biggest disappointment, Daniel? Uh, I went for Manchester City as a whole, really. I, I didn't expect Liverpool to be as brilliant as they have been, but even if they had been this good, I would have still expected a title race. Um, they lost the same number of league games as Wolves and 
more importantly, they seem to have regressed defensively back to that first season. I don't coach tackles Pep Guardiola, which is, yeah, was a real disappointment for me. Yeah, I, I, I went for Manchester City as well. They just seem weirdly mentally weak this season. You know, when they're on top, they were brilliant. They thrashed a whole bunch of teams. But then first sort of sniff of any adversity, they're then, they're then collapsed. You know, when they got 98 points uh, last season, Liverpool at least made a race of it, took it to the last day of the season. But um, the title race was basically over by November this season, which was ludicrous when you've got a team of kind of City's resources and theoretical talent. But they scored 102 goals, guys. Come on. That's fine then. <laughs> Congratulations. No, <laughs> I went I went for what for sacking three managers during one season. You don't expect that from a Premier League club. It was just such a huge disappointment. I and I have to mention Kepa. I always give credit for players who, who arrive in the in the Premier League because I've spoken to a lot of foreign players and they always say that the, the first season is the toughest. But Kepa, it's it's the second season and uh in his position being a goalkeeper it it's just it's it's a it's a disappointment so but but Watford comes first for me mm, Kepper with the worst save percentage of any Premier League goalkeeper I've read that's an astonishing statistic given that the other fact about him is he is the world's most expensive keeper can we have a mention for Everton as well in the disappointment category yeah Marco Silva was actually the the other one that uh, I had written down because up until this season I'd sort of vaguely been clinging on to the idea that he was you know, quite good, but particularly in that Merseyside derby when they lost five three afterwards, he looked like he needed a big cuddle, and it was kind of a, a sort of m- merciful act when he was sacked a couple of days later. Yeah, I felt for him, and and uh, st- I I still don't understand what happened there with Marco Silva because I was so sure that he was going to deliver at Everton, and and the players liked him, and but things just weren't happening. So yeah, it was it was weird, definitely. Do you think that Carlo Ancelotti is going to deliver at Everton? I think so. Yes, uh, I do think so. I, I, I think uh, it's uh, taking a little bit longer than I, I think Everton fans might uh, expect more by now. You know, he had half a season, so they should have finished uh, higher on the table. They were 12th. Uh, but I, I do believe in, in Ancelotti, yeah. Daniel, you were grimacing at the uh, at that question. <laughs> yeah, I, d- I just think they seem to have a tendency to be able to drag managers down quicker than the managers can drag them up. And um, that's nothing necessarily against Ancelotti. I think he's a fine manager, but it just doesn't seem the right fit at the moment. He, he needs to buy a midfield, basically, which is hard in six weeks. All interesting stuff, but we haven't got on yet to your most controversial opinions about this season and your one surefire prediction each for next season we'll be doing that very very shortly but next up let's hear from lee price with ben green thank you jimbo hello listeners lee price from paddy power is waiting expectantly on the line as we talk about the final game of the domestic season if you don't include the championship playoffs it's the fa cup final it's arsenal versus chelsea lee what is going to happen here please hmm as you know ben i always like to stay really neutral uh, never take the piss out of any team. But in this case, I have to be pro-Chelsea because it's the best result for the planet. If Arsenal lose this, we'll donate 6,000 trees, have that planet Earth. Uh, and the odds would suggest it's good news for the Earth. 11-10 to 10 for a Chelsea win. 23-10 to 10 Arsenal win it in normal time. 5-1 to 1 for extra time. 9-2 to 2 for penalties. And let's make it a little bit more interesting. Give us the first goal scorer markets and also uh, tell us whether there's going to be a red card or not. 
Yet two Arsenal potential legends top the goal-scoring markets. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and Olivier Giroud, of course, are both the favourites to open the scoring at 7-2. Christian Pulisic, he's in good nick, isn't he? He's 11-2 to to score first. Or what about David Luiz? He's due another storyline. He's 25-1 to to open the scoring. Are traders make that less likely than Meza Ozil, despite the fact that Ozil will not play? Uh, As for the red card, you can get odds of 5-2 for ascending off within the 90 minutes. Juicy. Finally, Lee, of course, there's been lots of talk about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's contract um, over the last few weeks. Is he still going to be a gooner next season? This actually prompted a really earnest uh, reply from our trainers. I'm not going to name and shame because they're lovely people who do good work and are much smarter than me. Uh, And they made a good point. If Arsenal win the FA Cup, that will affect things. Captain, of course, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. As it is before the match, we're odds on that he leaves this summer. One to two he goes. Six to four, he's still in place next season. But if he wins the Cup, apparently that makes him more likely to stay. We'll see. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddypower app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Now, one or two further reflections on this Premier League campaign, listener. Do we want to do best worst signings or has that already been covered by the whole disappointments and surprises category? Daniel? Well, I, I, having made Danny Ings the biggest surprise, I was able to leave him out of the best signing. But I went for another striker whose loan deal was made permanent, which is Raul Jimenez, who was signed for 30 million by Wolves. He scored 26 goals this season and remarkably has played 53 matches not out. Um it feels like he's been there for a long time, but yeah, he was only actually made permanent last summer. Okay. No, I think the best signing award should be called Bruno Fernandes Award. <laughs> That's my vote. Hard uh, the, to argue. the impact that he had, come on, it's it's impressive. But I, I also want to mention Martinelli for, for, for Arsenal because he was very cheap. Uh, Arsenal didn't pay a lot for him. They took him like it was very easy. He's young, he's promising. Uh, he, he was a very good signing. But yeah, Bruno Fernandes award for me. Natalie, you've been flagging Martinelli up for a while. If Aubameyang were to head out the door, how capable do you think Martinelli would be of picking up the slack? I think it's no I think it's just it's it's a little bit too early for him. Let's not forget that he's 18. It's a huge responsibility for an 18-year-old to take over uh the role of the main goal scorer, but I think he he's a very very promising player and he's going to be one of the main players for Arsenal definitely. My best signing of the season was Alison Maximan, just because, I mean, partly out of my own ignorance, I didn't know a huge amount about him before, but he's such a sort of joyful player to watch. You know, there are better players that have been signed this season, but as just a player to watch, I I, I would have to go with him. All right, then. Now, uh, I flagged up before that we'll be asking your most controversial take on this season. So, Nick, what can you offer us that nobody will agree with you on? Uh, well, I don't know about nobody who agree with them because I've sort of nicked this from a friend of mine and Dan's in that I think Norwich should be penalised in some way for basically not competing this season. They're kind of, everyone's, you know, you're, you you know how much teams get for getting promoted to the Premier League. They'll, they'll over the next three or four years, they'll get something like £190 million. Pounds. And while, you know, prudent running of a football club is very sensible to spend whatever it was, 900 grand on a reserve right-back, and that was their only kind of permanent signing last summer. And, you know, obviously they've been pretty pathetic since the restart, lost, what was it, nine games in a row. 
it's not even that they were bad. They, it just seems like they haven't competed in the Premier League this season. It's kind of it's almost wasting a spot. So, you know, maybe if they didn't get paid their uh, parachute payment or something like that for uh, for basically not competing this season. So, are you advocating there should be like a points threshold before you qualify for your parachute payments? Oh no, it's no, it's it's nothing as kind of uh, as enforceable or uh, or logical as that. It just it feels like that they not not really anything even anything to do with a points threshold because obviously there have been teams that have got fewer points than them. But at least those uh, teams that got fewer points, even I mean, even that derby team that got eleven points, they at least seemed to try and have a go. They spent what were for for them at the time was quite a lot of money on that team, which you know makes their failure even more spectacular but at least they were having a go it just it just seems like Norwich was sort of here to pick up the money and then shuffle back to the championship wow strong words strong <laughs> um, thanks Dan. strong words does anybody feel like they can disagree with Nick on that no I, I agree with the the point that it's a great shame I mean it should be said that they are basically trying to copy what Burnley did a few years ago which is get relegated bank the money, then buy a squad they think can compete in the Premier League and win the championship with that squad. But Haven't they tried this about four seasons in a row, though? Yeah, it's a heck of a gamble because, yeah, Sean Dyche is more of a solid fixture at Burnley or was than Daniel Farker is at Norwich, I think. So it could quite easily go spectacularly wrong. All right, shock us, Daniel, then with your hot take. Uh, mine is that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer deserves far less praise than he's getting or will get for taking Manchester United back into the top four. He spent £200 million this season on new players and got the same number of points, got fewer league wins and finished further from the top than last season. But they moved up three places. And the, the teams they finished above were a novice manager with a transfer ban and a Leicester side that collapsed at Christmas. Well, when you put it like that, anyone want to defend Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? Oh, no. I good, know. good. Direct yeah, your no. angry tweets to these two as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, because everybody was just expecting the worst from him for this season. So, so I think he overdid the, the the expectations. And there is a merit on a manager who knows who to sign, and and we have to point that out too. So he spent a lot of money, but he spent it well. Yeah, so I think that's that's all his merit, yeah. All right. Norwich getting pelters for not spending money. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer criticised for spending money. Natalie, what are you going to say controversially? Okay, I stand by Arsenal signing David Luiz. Hooray. Yes, because financially it was a good opportunity. But when you sign a player, you have to consider all the impact that he has on the group. And he's a leader. He has a strong personality. And Arsenal was lacking on this type of personality in the group. And I personally prefer a player who doesn't hide from responsibility uh, than several players that go unnoticed. And I think Arsenal has had this type of player for too long. So I'm not saying David Luiz uh, doesn't make mistakes because he's not saying that as well. And I'm not saying uh, he's the perfect defender, but I think he has good moments. And every time he has a good moment, oh, so David Luiz had this very one rare good moment and, and it's not appreciated enough. So, so I stand by David Luiz signing. Well, those words sound familiar. It's almost like we heard those earlier on. <laughs> hey, Nick. Yeah, I mean, I, you, sh- you should have jumped in when I said that, Natalie. And we, you know. <laughs> no, I was, I was saving for this moment, yeah. Nice. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, to round things off then, what about a surefire prediction for next season? Nick? Uh, lots and lots and lots of muscle injuries. Um, 
ESPN's uh, Dale Johnson on Twitter sort of basically mapped out next season um, the other day, and there, there's basically no wiggle room at all for any you know rearrangements or postponements or or anything like that. For, certainly for teams that are playing in uh, a few competitions, and it feels like clubs are obviously aren't going to have as much time to sign players and kind of have more depth in their squads so players are going to be kind of really hammered from the September through to May uh, in what will be a kind of a very packed season looking at the schedule it doesn't also look like there's going to be much space for a winter break either so uh, I think kind of deep muscle uh, massage people are going to have lots of work this season. Yeah, Nick's been reading my notes. I've got exactly the same. Players being absolutely knackered by the Euros next summer. Six-week break, smaller window to buy new players, a one-month shorter season. And yeah, the Euros start 19 days after the final Premier League round of fixtures, which will make the football worse, it should be said, sadly. Well, that's an easy prediction sorry no but uh, i was here (laughs) cracking my head thinking yes 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 i'm saying it because i was here cracking my head thinking how am i going to make a prediction before the transfer window we don't even know how this is gonna go i put my risk here you know i i wrote down here in my notes united will be a title contender so that's taking a risk not injuries yeah Players will get injured. This just in. Yes. Um, this, you're, you're the coward. You're the coward that didn't get on the anti Ole Solskjaer train, Natalie. So, so uh, yeah. you've got Man United being contenders, which is a, a fairly broad category, uh, Natalie. Who do you think is actually going to win? Oh, they're going for injuries, and you're putting me against the wall. Yeah, after, well, all <laughs> okay. three of you gone as it stands. Gone. Who's going to win? Are, are Liverpool going to repeat? Can Man City bounce back? Can Man United be not just a contender but an actual title winner? Nick, as the, as things stand, I don't really think Manchester City will be up. Will be kind of this bad again. So I, I think probably Manchester City will win the league again next season. All right, Daniel. Yeah, well done, Natalie for tipping the third favourites for the title next season to be in the title challenge. <laughs> Very brave of you. If you really, uh, Natalie, if you really wanted a brave <laughs> prediction, you should have doubled down on David Luiz. David Luiz for player of the season. There you go. Okay. I'll have Man City as well, I think. Man City, Man City, Natalie. Oh, you stole my answer. Yes, I was going for Man City. Come on, is Pep's, is Pep's last season? Probably. I, I don't see him signing an extension. So, yeah, I'm going for Man City. Okay. Hey, I can't believe we got through the biggest disappointment section without mentioning VAR, because, of course, this was the season it came in with such brilliant results. But anyway, that's enough about the 2019-2020 season until we dust it off for a little retro section in the middle of next next season's lockdown, God forbid. Uh, but anyway, uh, we, we do have more to come from the Totally Football Show in the course of this season. For a start, the Totally Scottish Football Show is now back up and running uh, because the Scottish Premiership season starts on Saturday. So do join Andrew Slaven and company for that. Totally Football League show is out on Friday, as we mentioned. Sunday, Totally Football show will be rounding up uh, the FA Cup final and also the final weekend of the season in Italy. And we'll also be doing a throw forward to all that Europa League and Champions League uh, action, which is uh, getting underway from Wednesday. So do hope you'll be joining us for some or all of that, listener. Uh, for now, though, that's it for this show. So many, many thanks to Natalie Jedra, uh, to Daniel Story and Nick Miller and producer Charlie. And we'll be back with you soon. 
So do hope you have a wonderful time in the meanwhile. Cheerio. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.